Welcome back to our Ruth series. We have two weeks left in the book of Ruth, uh, this being the first of those two, right? So two weeks left in the book of Ruth. We begin in chapter four. We begin at the end, right? Chapter four of Ruth is where we'll be spending most of our time. Um, Quick review, and then we'll get into it. Last week in Ruth chapter three, Naomi and Ruth devise a plan. Okay, Ruth is to get dressed up and go to Boaz the night they are threshing grain. Uh, She is to lay down and ask him to redeem her family. Now, I know this sounds like, what in the world are you talking about? Um, We covered this in much more detail um, last week in Ruth chapter 3. So I would really recommend listening to last week's sermon before jumping into this week. Um, just as kind of a a way to fill in some of the gaps. But um, this sermon, I hope, will hold up on its own as well. Uh, But but like we've talked about before, Boaz is a good man. Uh, He is also close in relation to Naomi. So he can be this kinsman redeemer. Uh, He can bring protection and financial stability to these two widows. And he agrees to it at the end of Ruth chapter 3. But then we learn at the end of chapter 3, there is one other factor. There is a family member closer in relation to Naomi than Boaz. And he deserves to be told about this, right? He deserves his chance to be kinsman redeemer. So Boaz tells Ruth to stay there until morning. And at daybreak, I'll go to the city gate. I'll find this guy and either he will redeem you guys or I will. And I won't let him do it unless he is as honored to do this as I am. He sends Ruth home with roughly 50 more pounds of barley and heads off to solve this once and for all. And one thing that I want to hit on for a second before we really jump in. So Ruth spent the night there. Ruth would have spent this whole night either so excited at the prospect of another redeemer or so anxious at not having Boaz redeem them, but someone else, this other man that she doesn't even know instead. I really doubt that she or Boaz slept very much that night at all because of the the anxiety or maybe excitement, but I would assume more uh, of an anxious thing. Naomi, who had just sent Ruth out on this very risky mission that night, would also be up all night anxious, I think. Not only did did Boaz say yes or no, but was Ruth safe? Because what we learned last time, remember, is Israel sadly was not a paradise at all during the time the judges ruled. It was very doubtful that any of them slept very much. And yet this was all going according to God's plan. And I want to say something to us, to our 21st century ears. Sometimes God's plan results in sleepless nights for us. Sometimes we we mistakenly are taught and we mistakenly think that God is a giant pillow, right? Uh, He's only there to bring us comfort and softness, and Christianity is just this giant nap time while we're waiting for heaven. And if you're stressing, or if there's something major happening in your life that's causing you anxiety, then you must be doing Christianity wrong. And I would remind you, I would remind us all, instead of thinking like that, I would remind us that Paul The man who followed Jesus so closely, who knew so much about the nature of God, says in 2 Corinthians 11.27, he says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. 
Luke 9, 58, Jesus says, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, meaning sleep. Jesus himself, the night of his crucifixion, barely slept, if at all. He was on trial most of the night. If you're going through a sleepless night, that does not mean that you are out of God's will. It doesn't mean he has abandoned you. Paul, who followed God so closely, who did the best he can to stay in God's will, suffered many sleepless nights. Jesus, who going through the cross was the ultimate example of following God's will, did it on a sleepless night. If you're going through a sleepless night, it does not mean that you're out of God's will. It does not mean that he has abandoned you. Ruth and Naomi are about to be blessed beyond their wildest dreams, and there's anxiety in their hearts right beforehand. Some anxiety is natural. We talked about this last year in our series on anxiety. I, I highly recommend you check it out. Some anxiety is natural. It's part of being an imperfect human who doesn't know everything. Naturally, we will be anxious about the unknown. Uh, and even more than that, I think, you know, the night I proposed to Kristen, we went to dinner first so that my brother and my mom could set everything up beforehand in the student building. And I knew Kristen was going to say yes, but my legs were shaking during the whole dinner. That's the least mellow mushroom I've ever eaten in my life, right? Big things in life will make us anxious. That's okay. That's part of not being God. If anything, our anxiety is a reminder that we're not perfect. We're not all-knowing. If anything, our anxiety is pointing us to the one who is. Big things in life will make us anxious, and that's okay. It's not okay when that anxiety paralyzes us, when we cast our eyes on it more than we keep our eyes on God. Boaz was nervous. Ruth was nervous. Naomi was nervous. But they did what Paul says in Philippians 3.12, but I press on so that I may lay hold. If we're nervous about something, that's okay. We trust our Lord and we press on. So let's jump in. Ruth chapter 4, 1 through 6. Ruth chapter 4, 1 through 6 says this. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He then took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you saying, but it lay, but by it, there we go, by it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabites, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased of his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption for I cannot redeem it. Okay, so let's break this down in pieces. 
So Boaz goes to the city gate, first of all, okay? Um, This is not just a fence that people leaned up against and chewed gum and talked about sports, right? The city gate was the main area. Not only, if you notice, Boaz went up to the city gate, so the city is in an elevated position, uh, more safer in terms of military, right? It's better to be uphill. Um, The city gate was also not only the main area of defense, but the main area of legal business in the city. The city gates were were these large, thick structures that had tons of rooms throughout. Um, It was a main place of culture and activity, including legal activity. Uh, Notice it says, Boaz went to the gate and sat down. And then this redeemer comes and sits down. And then the elders of the city come and sit down. This would be an official, seen as an official act almost like going into a courtroom and sitting down um, at the defense table. There's a reason for you going to the gate and sitting down, okay? Um, people would have seen this and said, oh, Boaz must have, so, have some legal matter to discuss that day. And then you see in verse 1, now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. Behold, again, just like in chapter 2, Okay, go back and listen again or or look back in Ruth chapter two. The author is using a bit of sarcasm here as oil for the engine in this story. Just as Boaz is going to the gate to solve this matter and find this mystery redeemer, behold, he shows up. What an incredible coincidence. In chapter two, Ruth and Naomi were desperate to find food and safety, remember? And Ruth just happened to find Boaz's field. Israel is basically one giant field at this point. It's all field. And Ruth, just remember what the text says in chapter 2, Ruth just chanced upon chance to end up in Boaz's field. Really? And now in chapter 4, Boaz is going to the town gate, and behold, surprisingly, here's just the man in Israel that Boaz needs to see, and he's at the city gate. They can solve it right here and now. The hidden hand of God is all over our lives. This is a direct attack. The author is directly attacking atheism and chance here in this text. The hidden hand of God is everywhere in our lives. The people we meet, the things that happen to us, the things that don't happen to us. God's hand is expertly weaving our entire life together. Ephesians 1.11 says, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to God's purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. God's will is working all things together in our life. There are no chance encounters. Another way to say it is a chance encounter is a godless encounter. There are no godless encounters. Ephesians 1.11, he works out all things after the counsel of his will. So nothing happens without God first processing and thinking through it and then allowing it to happen or causing it to take place. God is involved in every interaction and every event. Even the seemingly chance encounters are not even close to being chance at all. That's one of the points that the author is making in this story. Notice also this guy's name, verses 1 through 3. 
Notice this mystery redeemer's name. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke of was passing by. So he said, turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell a piece of land which belonged to our brother, Elimelech. Look at the links this author goes to, all the awkward phrasing this author goes to, to not mention the guy's name. Closest relative, friend. Then he said to the closest relative, he. Now this whole chapter, here's why this is important. This whole chapter is about names. That's one of the biggest themes of this entire chapter is names. The preserving of the name of Naomi's husband's family line. The preserving of Elimelech's name, Naomi's husband, and and his children, his name. The good name of Ruth being defended. The, The chapter ends with a list of what? Names. In a chapter completely dedicated to names, this man is nameless. That should tell us something, and we'll see why in just a second. Verses 3 and 4. Then Boaz said to the closest relative, again, no name, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, buy it before those who are sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one to redeem it but you, and I am after you. And the man said, I will redeem it. He wants to do it. So Boaz tells this guy the first part of the deal. Naomi's a widow. She has a piece of land that she is not strong enough to work. She has no relatives to work. She cannot afford to work. So she has to sell it and use that money to survive. But you can buy it from her and keep the piece of land in the family. So this guy, this mystery guy in his head is thinking, I can just buy this land for cheap, and then it goes to me and my inheritance, and all I have to worry about is one old woman? Done. Done deal. This is easy. This is a no-brainer. More for me and my inheritance. And then Boaz says, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek maybe even a little bit, there's one other part involved here, five through six. Five through six. Then Boaz said, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You, Boaz, may have my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. Boaz kind of tells him the other side of this deal, the more costly side of the deal, the kinsman redeemer side of the deal. Boaz shows him, you would buy the land, but you wouldn't actually get the land. Ruth comes with this land, this Moabites, who is wonderful, but you know, the, remember we talked about this, the poor reputation that Moabites had in Israel. You would need to marry her and provide her with a child. This child would not take your name, but the name of Ruth's first husband who has died. And the field that you bought to keep in the family would go to him, not you. And and here's what Boaz is saying. You know, this guy saw it as as a great deal, but Boaz is saying, I'm not asking you to close a real estate deal here. 
I'm asking you to save the life of this family, to save the line of this family, not to be a real estate broker and gain more for yourself, but to be a kinsman redeemer and give some of yourself for this other part of your family. And now the guy won't do it. You see, service is a great thing as long as you can put it on Instagram. Service is a great thing as long as people know you're serving. I'll volunteer as as much as you want at at our church as long as people know I'm volunteering. As long as I get a a, a say in, in... I'll volunteer in the kitchen as long as I get a say in how the kitchen goes. I'll volunteer in the youth ministry as as long as the youth pastor does what I think he should do. I'll sing in the choir as long as they'll listen to what I suggest. As long as I get something out of this serving, I'm happy to serve because we get this worldly kickback from it. But that kind of service, while it has its place, it doesn't bring all glory to God. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 46 and 47, for if you love those who love you, again, there's the worldly kickback, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than any other people? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus is saying, you serving people who will help you in return is fine and good, but that's not what defines you as a believer. Everybody will help people who will help them back. Anybody will help you if helping you helps them. As soon as this guy saw that there was nothing in it for him, he was done. He is far more lawfully obligated to be a kinsman redeemer than Boaz is, and he still says no. And look at why he says no. Verse 6. Verse 6. And when I find it, we'll read it. The closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself. Why not? Because I would jeopardize my own inheritance. I would jeopardize my own inheritance if I tried this. I'm trying to protect my own family line, Boaz. I can't do this. I'm trying to protect what? My own name. And what do we never learn about this man? His name. That's why we never learn his name. The author is telling us this guy totally missed the point. He was fine with serving God as long as he got something out of it other than just God. I want you to think about that. He was fine with serving God as long as he got something out of it other than just God and his approval. As long as the world's economy added up in his mind, he'll serve God. But do all this and I don't even get to see what I get out of it? No way. No, no, no. And the insanity of it all is that this guy missed being in the line of King David, the greatest king Israel ever had. That's how Ruth ends, by the way. Ruth and Boaz are great-grandparents of King David. And David is a forerunner of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 1, you know who's listed in Jesus' family line? The same family line as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the great heroes of Israel? Ruth! That's what this guy could have had. 
trying to preserve my, I can't do it because I'm trying to preserve my family line. This guy could have had the ultimate family line. And he couldn't see past his own selfishness. So it cost him and any recognition of his family line. That's why they don't tell you his name. In fact, if you saw in verse, in verse 1 of chapter 4 where Boaz sees him, and he says, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. The Hebrew there literally is so-and-so. They won't even give you his name in the Hebrew. That's the point this guy's trying to make. This guy has completely destroyed his own name in a selfish pursuit. He lost the very thing he valued because he put it above God. He lost the very thing he valued because he tried to put it above God. Students, you know this, some of you, the hard way. We can push away our boyfriend or our girlfriend because we overload them. We try to make them God. Or we can start to hate the sports we play because we do it nonstop. Got to get the scholarship. And, D, and even below that, I think for some parents and for some families, the scholarship, it just feels good to say that. Get the accomplishment. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with being an accomplished athlete, right? Samson, hello. But, but to put it above God, it will turn to ash and dust in our mouths. Or, we can, or, or maybe we don't make it as far as we thought we would in sports, and it devastates us. Not because we failed the sport, but because our God has let us down. And it doesn't have to be sports, it doesn't have to be boyfriend or girlfriend. You fill in the blank, right? Academic achievement, volunteering at church, good reputation at church. Maybe you're so desperate to have a good reputation at church that when, you're, when your kid messes up, oh, we, well, we don't mention that to anybody. Don't you dare say that to anybody here at church. Who knows what they would think? Well, isn't that the whole point of church? When you mess up, I'm not going to tell anybody this. I'm going to hide it deep down. Why? Because your reputation, your name is of higher value to you than, than trying to get right with God. This, is, this was a huge heart check even for myself. These things that were supposed to bring blessing and joy, they became God and they destroyed this man. And in our own lives, things that are designed right? Sports, relationships, theater, academics, family, things that we're supposed to bring blessing and joy become gods and they destroy us. They destroy us. This guy worshiped family and name instead of God, and it cost him both. Also, another thing to take from this is worshiping God sometimes involves letting go of things. This guy would have had to let go of some earthly things, some money, we don't know how much or how little, but he would have had to let go of some money to buy this field from Naomi. He would have had to let go of some of his own name, right? His inheritance doesn't get this land. It belongs to Ruth's husband and Naomi and their family. So he would have had to give up some things to do what was required of him to serve the Lord. But look at the incredible value of what he would have gotten, a place in the line of David, God will never ask you to sacrifice more than he can repay. Never. Romans 8, 18, Paul says, For I consider the suffering of this present time 
not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not worthy to be compared. If this guy knew what God had planned for him, he would have paid and done whatever it required. And the glory that God has waiting for us with him in heaven is not even worthy of being compared with the things that we must give up on this side. And I don't say that lightly. I think a lot of times people say, oh, heaven's so much better than anything on this earth. And they're not really thinking about what that, there's a reason Jesus tells us to count the cost. And I think in a way it's a blessing because it shows if this thing is so great on earth and I'm going to give you more, the streets of history are full of Christians who gave so much in service to God. So much. And I bet you, as soon as they saw Jesus face to face in heaven, I bet you they haven't even thought of that sacrifice since. Unless it, it, the only way I, maybe they thought about it is when they think, I'm so glad I sacrificed that. I'm so glad I gave that up and didn't let it cost me heaven and didn't let it cost me this. I'm so glad I gave this up so that I could see Jesus. The Christian life is a life of great sacrifice and greater reward. It's not just great sacrifice. It is great sacrifice, but it's great sacrifice in light of a greater, more awesome reward. And that doesn't mean that we always see that greater reward on this side. Now think about this. Boaz had no idea that King David was going to come from his line. That was three generations later. Ruth and Boaz were probably long gone. They didn't know all this awesome stuff was going to happen. They didn't do it for the stuff they would get. They did this because God was enough for them. They said, God, I don't need a name or a title. This is a small town in Israel. I, I don't need recognition, Lord. I need you. I'll pay for Ruth and Naomi because I need you, Lord, more than I need this money. I'll help Ruth have a son and continue the family line because I don't need my name to be famous. I want your name to be famous, Lord. And as you guys get older and go through life, you, you'll come to find in some situations, um, you'll come to find in some situations that whenever the Lord closes a door, he opens a window. Yeah, but not every time. Sometimes he wants you to stay in that room and grow in a way that you would not grow if he let you out. Sometimes he wants to, and I mean this in the best way, sometimes he wants to leave you with nothing so that you'll see he's all you have, really. And when you realize that he's all you have, you'll realize that he is all that you need. I keep thinking of Philippians 2, 5 through 8 during this whole series of Ruth. I keep thinking about the humility of Boaz and Ruth and how it points to someone, their humility points to someone with humility that is even more incredible. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. 
Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus Christ, the name, remember this chapter is all about names. Well, Jesus Christ says, the Bible says, a name above every name. And he was willing to have his name forgotten so that you could be spared. Remember what's hanging on the cross when Jesus dies? Here lies Jesus Christ, King of the Jews. They're making fun of his name. The name above all names was not just forgotten. If anything worse, it was ridiculed. He was willing to have everyone forget his name so that you and I could be spared, so that your life could be redeemed. He spent all his money. Here's a way to think about it. He spent all his money so that your debt of sin could be paid and that you could be secure in his mansion forever. You see, with Jesus, you don't just break even. You get everything in his account. He has not only paid our debt, he has made us rich. Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him where do, where was and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So we're not broke even. Our status in heaven is not as just sinners who are saved, but we have become saints in heaven. It's as if we've never sinned a day in our lives on earth. Jesus not only paid the penalty for our sin, he gave us his obedience. Naomi and, and, and Ruth are no longer just, they broke even. They get all this land that Boaz has bought for them. It's a total change. And, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this more next week. But if you think about it, Naomi was childless now, coming back into Bethlehem at the end of chapter one. She was childless. And how does she finish? It's, they say, you have a daughter who is better than seven sons. You have a daughter who is better than the perfect son. Naomi has gone from empty, no sons, no status, to being in the line of a king with the perfect child in Ruth. It's a total change in status. And this is the, the, their earthly change in status is nothing compared to the spiritual change of status that Jesus' sacrifice gives to us from sinner to saint. Let's pray.